Well, um, we are going to wrap up a sermon series that I've been doing for the last few weeks uh, in the uh, letter to the Colossians that Paul wrote in the first century, and I've enjoyed it a lot, studying for it, reading about it, and just being reminded of, of what uh, we can see in that letter. And uh, as we've talked about, Paul has, uh, was in prison when he wrote this, and Paul did not let the fact that he was in prison keep him, um, as Tavares just said, from advancing the gospel message. That wasn't going to... Obviously, he wanted to be out starting more churches, getting the message out in person, but he couldn't. So he says, well, I'm going to get these letters out to Christ followers all over, those churches I have started, those who are getting started. And as I told you, he probably never even met this group of people face to face, but he knew that they were there. He knew that they were uh, Christ followers, that they were meeting, that they were struggling in their culture with some of the same things that that we struggle with. So we, as we went through, as we've been going through Colossians, we recognize that Paul is very specific in who Christ is. Um, he is one with God the Creator. He became human. He came and dwelt among us, as uh, the message says, moved into the neighborhood with us. And what Christ did through that was to show us what it was to really be a child of God. And he brought salvation. He brought relational restoration through his life, death, and resurrection. And Paul makes that very clear that this is who Christ is. This is what he's done for us to transform our lives. And because of that, and Paul says, just like it did for me, it can do that for you as well. And this is what he's done. And so now that you know who he is and what he's done for you now, how are you going to live? What does that mean for you in everyday life? How you live, how you walk on your journey now, knowing who Christ is and what he's done for you. So he says you got to stay on course. And as we've read through this letter, we've realized that there were things going on in this culture um, that were... Um, in conflict with Christianity, you have all these different people who are coming through that are sellers and traders of things from different parts of the world, and they're coming through Colossae, and they're saying, hey, we've heard about this religion, we've heard about this faith, we, we've heard about this philosophy, and people aren't texting and tweeting about it, they're actually talking face-to-face -face about these things, and sometimes those are in conflict with what Christianity said, and so Paul's trying to make sure that they understand um, what, what, what the difference is. And you know what? You don't need all that other stuff. You don't need all these philosophies. And there was a, a lot of stuff going on in that culture called syncretism where you just kind of like going to Golden Corral. You know when you go to Golden Corral and you get some of everything because it's all so good? You know? He said, no, you just take a little bit of this religion and that religion and this faith and that faith and just kind of mesh it all together and you'll be okay. And Paul's saying, no, all you need is to be in Christ. And we hear that phrase over and over again in this letter, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You used to live in the flesh, but now you live in Christ and he has transformed you and now you live by the Holy Spirit. So Paul's telling them how to walk and live following Christ in their daily lives. And for many of them, that meant revision in their relationships. And that's true for us today. In Christ, everything changes regardless of how you were raised to see things regardless of what you believed, regardless of what you've practiced in the past, whether religiously or non-religiously, um, whether you have these political views or those philosophical views, none of that matters anymore because now you are in Christ and it transforms everything. You die to your old self and you are raised with Christ and there's this new journey and a new course you're on. And now you're led to live not as 
Paul talks about not by your old selfish desires, what he called the flesh. We don't live like that anymore. Now we live by the Holy Spirit, and that's Christ in me and in you. And so my hope that is through this study, this letter, as a follower of Christ, and I believe probably most of us here are followers of Christ, but as we've gone through that, I hope you've been encouraged. I hope you've been equipped with what Paul has said, even though it was to a first century audience that certainly has relevance for us today, and I hope you've been challenged to stay on course. But I also hope if you're not a follower of Christ and you've been hearing this, I hope this letter has enlightened and hopefully inspired you to consider being a follower of Jesus Christ. So in the last few weeks, we've, we've talked about uh, how following Jesus sets new standards and guidelines for our relationships and uh, distinct and unique roles that work for husbands and wives, and we've talked about that. And sometimes what Paul said is not real popular. It wasn't real popular in his culture. It's not real popular in our culture. But Paul is saying every person in relationship matters. They may have different roles, but they are unique individuals, and there are specific roles that we have, and Jesus and God spoke to those, and Paul is relaying that to these folks and letting them know. So we talked about husbands and wives, and last week we talked about parent-children relationships. And again, when we read this letter, I don't think we quite pick up on it, but when he talked to husbands and wives, we expect in that culture for wives to have some things they're supposed to do, submit to their husbands. But then he says, but husbands, and we're like, wait a minute, they, they don't have to do anything. They're the ones in charge. No, in Jesus' kingdom, there are roles. There are guidelines. There is a way you're supposed to act as a husband. He says, you're supposed to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And I said, I'd much rather just submit to my wife than love her as Christ loved the church. That's a pretty high bar, isn't it? And then we talked about last week with parent-child relations. And yes, it was pretty normal in that culture that parent, uh, kids are supposed to obey your parents in everything. But then he says specifically, parents, fathers, do not embitter your children. Okay, do not discourage them. And that was an important to hear that too. And again, in that culture, like, wait a minute, kids are just supposed to obey their parents. There's no instructions for the guy who's in charge. And he goes, in God's kingdom, there is. There is instruction because each person matters in that relationship to God. And there are things that they need to be reminded of and do as a Christ follower. So it also gives us um, uh, the uh, guidelines for what God always intended marriage to be and what God always intended families to be when we actually follow those guidelines that he sets. Um, so that's what God specifically wanted and intended for um, marriages and families all along. So today we're going to look at another role that may seem very odd to us that Paul talks about, and uh, it's slaves and masters. And we go, what? No, we don't have slaves and masters. Now, we know there's a problem with human slavery, human trafficking going on. But I want you to listen to specifically what Paul talks about. And I want to just kind of give a little bit of background on slavery in this culture that may be a little different um, uh, in, our, in our knowledge. I, I probably, my knowledge, your knowledge of slavery in that time is maybe a little limited. But um, even for the mention of slavery is something that we would see as cruel, as injustice to another human being, and something that surely, surely God never intended to be in his world, and something that we should certainly stand against. But in the first century culture of the Roman Empire, slavery was just entrenched in their culture in everyday life. The slavery uh, in that culture was in many ways very different than what we know as New World slavery that maybe we're accustomed to, we're more familiar with as far as our scope of knowledge 
of slavery. Originally in the Roman world, slaves were used for labor in the whole economy of the empire. They were used for every aspect of the empire. Slaves first came from captured prisoners of war. So instead of killing you, you will now become a slave um, in our culture. And a lot of times, kidnapped victims of pirates and bandits also became slaves. And this allowed Roman masters to rationalize the enslaving of these POWs, if you will, or victims, and saying, hey, we're actually saving their lives. We're actually giving them a better life because they could be dead. But we've given their life back, and now they can be our, our slaves, and we're doing something to enhance their life. But as Abraham Lincoln once says, whenever I hear someone arguing for slavery, I feel a strong impulse to see it tried on him personally. And that's very true. But in this culture as slaves, um, you know, were in every part of this Roman Empire, they would have children, and these children grew up in slavery, uh, you know, slaves of parents, and then this provided consistent source of more slaves as the culture continues. And as time went on, the poor in the empire would sometimes actually opt to be slaves or even to possibly sell their children as slaves to improve the, the lives of their children or to improve their own lives or social or economic standing. And slaves carried out many functions of daily life, in this Roman Empire. And they were not limited to what we probably know in our, our scope of, of slavery um, as, you know, like agricultural labor or non-educated labor who worked on farms. Slaves were many times very educated and worked in almost every facet of the workforce. But in the Roman Empire, if you were a slave, you didn't have the same rights as a free person. And if you were a slave, you could not be in politics or military. That was the only two things you couldn't work in, which is interesting. But the makeup of slaves then was not race-specific, again, as we think about in the New World type of slavery. Slaves were from many different places and cultures and blended in with society. And in most cases, when people were walking in and out of your daily life as you walked down the street and went to the market and went to work and did your things, there would be slaves all around you, but you couldn't tell the difference. You had no idea unless you actually talked to the person whether that person was slave or free unless you just knew their background. And that's kind of how it was in, the, in that culture. The other difference from New World slavery was that in many cases there were many opportunities to gain your freedom. You could get enough money and you could become a citizen, become a freedman. And However, sometimes that was not pursued by slaves in this culture because they had a lot of good benefits of being a slave. Their master was wealthy. They lived a great lifestyle. They took care of them. They fed them. They clothed them. A lot of times we think of slavery as is being um, you know, abused and mistreated, but that was not always the case in, in this culture. But they would have uh, enjoyed uh, not necessarily those same benefits if they got their freedom. Freedom could put you in a much lower economic status from the master you were saving, the li the li serving, the lifestyle that you were um, used to being a part of. So a lot of people just said, hey, I'm just going to stay a slave. And education for slaves in this culture was very much encouraged. And as you know, in the New World slavery, they didn't want uh, slaves to be educated. And they tried to keep that from them. But it was very much uh, encouraged in this culture. And I say all that to help us understand why, and a lot of times this comes up in our culture, people say, Paul talks about slavery, but why doesn't he specifically condemn slavery? Have you ever thought about that? 
Why does Paul not specifically condemn slavery in the New Testament writings? He's talking about it here, but he doesn't seem to really condemn it. But as we read what he says, I think Paul's saying, hey, I'm very aware of what's going on. He's not saying it's right, but he's not saying it's wrong, but he's saying this is how you have to act because it's obviously a part of the fiber of the culture that we're in, and here's what I want you to do as a part of that. So what we'll see here is Paul's relational teaching. Once again, it's counterculture in many regards because he's not only going to say slaves this is how you should treat this is how you should live as a slave but masters and wait a minute masters don't have any rules they're in charge no as a Christ follower you do have rules you do have guidelines in God's kingdom and he shares those so we're going to look at that um, now we understand that there were certainly some masters who treated their slaves fairly and just and took care of them, even made them part of their own family, and those people felt that. But in other cases, in this culture, we also know that slaves were treated cruelly and, and, and with injustice, and there were slaves who did not serve their masters the way they should, because a lot of times it was a written contract between the slave and the master, and they were supposed to own up to their part of the contract. So Paul's going to speak to both of those. But we look at this in light of what Paul has said a little bit earlier in this letter in chapter 3. He says, now that you've been raised with Christ, your life is now hidden with Christ. Your life is now with Christ, and Christ is your life. And it's interesting that he says that now that you have been raised, your old life, whatever experience you had to this point, now you are in Christ. That is different now because you've been raised with Christ. So with that in context, we're going to read Colossians chapter 3, verses 22, and we're going to go down to chapter 4 and start in verse 1. And if we have time, we'll get through the rest of it. So I think that's going to be on the screen for us if we can get that up there. There it is. Thank you. All right, so this is, what, this is what he says specifically. Remember, he's talked to husbands and wives, he's talked to children, and now he says just another relationship in this culture. Slaves, obey your early, earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you but, and to carry their favor, but also with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, and we're going to stop right there. If we have time, we'll come back and, and read the rest of this. But just as we saw in the instructions to children and uh, to wives and husbands, children and parents, again, for us, it seems crazy in our culture and from our perspective to think, how do, I don't even understand how to wrap my head around people who are slaves. I can't even imagine what that would be like. We've read about it. We've maybe seen it in movies, and we see how unjust that is, but we can't quite understand that. But Paul's taking seriously that this is a major relationship within this culture. It's real. Within the people in this church of Colossae that has gotten started, they see this and see this every day. And this is a thing that I think we have a hard time. I have a hard time. There was no Bible do we understand that in the first century? There was no Bible. There was no Old Testament that they could flip through. They did have access to the Jewish scriptures because that's really the law and the prophets. That's what it was. But it was if they went to a Jewish um, uh, synagogue, they might could get that. They might could have access to that. But there was no New Covenant. There was no New Testament. These letters were circulating around, but they sat around. And I go, what did they do at church? When someone got up to preach, what did they preach? 
Well, they have the teachings of Jesus that keep being passed on through the apostles. And then obviously Paul has been uh, spoken to by the Holy Spirit and he's writing these letters. And so these letters were very important to them and saying this is how we live as Christ followers because they didn't have Bibles. They didn't have those kind of things that we have. So Paul lets them know, he says, since you have been raised with Christ, we've heard this earlier, he says, you have set your minds and hearts on things above where Christ is seated, okay? And so he's saying, hey, when you're a slave and you're working, he says, don't just, you know, necessarily do what, you know, he says, obey them in everything. And again, we talked about last week, you know, parents, he said that very same thing to, to children to, about your parents. In everything, obey them. And now he's saying to um, slaves, you're supposed to obey your master in everything. And do not only do it when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. So he's saying, if you're going to show them Christ as a slave, they need to see your obedience. They need to see that you're not just doing it when they're watching, but this is the way you operate always. Every part of your life is saying, I'm going to do the best job that I can. And so ultimately, he's saying our master is Christ, and that's why whatever we do, we should work at it with all our heart as working for the Lord, not for men, and that's what he's telling them. You're not really working for the master. You're not really working for a man or a woman or his family. You're really working for Christ. Now, that's kind of hard for me to grasp as a free person, and it probably was maybe hard for them to grasp as a, as a, a slave to go, that's really how I'm supposed to go, yeah. If you want to make a difference in God's kingdom, if you want to make a difference, if you really want them to see Christ in you, then it matters how you react and behave every day as a slave. And that was important. Paul says, you know that you will receive an inheritance as a reward. Notice he's not saying you might. There's something you have to do. No, you will receive an inheritance as a reward. That really matters and does not come from men, but from the Lord, because God's really the one who's watching and keeping track of what you do. He's that close to you. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. It's not really your master. And then we come into our context of our life. Sometimes we call people masters in our, in our world, don't we? I hear my kids talk about maybe their teachers sometimes feel like masters. And we're slaves. I hear it every day. I don't want to go to school today. So terrible, like you have no idea. Maybe you've had a boss that felt like a master at times, somebody that was maybe not very sensitive, maybe a manager. But it's not your boss you're working for. It's not your manager you're working for. It's not your teacher. It's not your coach. It's not even you that you're really working for. He says, Paul says, when you become a follower of Christ, you're working for him. He is your master. And Jesus says you are serving in whatever you do. That's what you're doing. Whatever you're doing, you're totally... You're ultimately serving Jesus Christ. But what if we really embrace this truth? How would things be different in your business and in your company or place of work if we really practiced that? And some of you have seen that because of the way you act, because of the way maybe the company or the people who are in charge and the leadership at where you are, because of the way they do practice their business, how they treat people, it does make a difference. And people do see Christ. And that's very, very important. And I know probably a lot of y'all have worked for both of those type of places where people say, hey, it's obvious that this person must be a Christian. I don't know it for sure, but the things that they practice every way, the way that they treat people shows me that they must be a Christ follower. And it becomes obvious. Well, some of y'all have heard of the company called Service Master. Have y'all heard of that company? And Service Master provides employees for different services all over the world. And uh, I, I read this story, or actually heard on a podcast recently, about this uh, 
service master where they were providing janitorial employees for a hospital. But one of the things that they do when they do sign a contract with a, a hospital or a group of hospitals is they say, hey, we want to bring the doctors and nurses and the staff of the hospital together with the actual janitors that are going to be working in the hospital with the, do uh, with the doctors and nurses. And you kind of think, well, what's the point of that? You know, those guys are going to be cleaning toilets, they're going to be cleaning floors, they're going to be cleaning up after the operating. The doctors do the operating and they do all that kind of technical stuff. The nurses do all that. You do your job, I'll do mine. We might rub shoulders and say, hey, how you doing, all that kind of stuff. But why bring them together before you actually have them start working at the hospital? And they said this. He says, we want them to understand with the doctors and nurses how important it is. And so the doctors and nurses talked about keeping the floors in a patient's room clean, keeping the operating room clean, making sure that the medical type stuff is disposed of properly is of utmost importance to the safety and to the critical part of helping a patient get better. And we want them to understand that. And so that's what they do when they go into a hospital and they bring them all together. And later they had this lady in this specific hospital who people noticed how much she loved her job. And finally somebody goes, what is it with you? I don't mean to be... Um, disrespectful, but you're a janitor in the hospital and you seem to really, really love your job. And she said this, she said, the patients would not get well without me. I love my work because it has such great meaning and purpose. Now, I don't know if that company is a Christian company, but that kind of aspect of saying you are valuable, no matter what role you play in your work, you are valuable in doing something that makes a difference in someone's life. And when people believe that and they know that, they're going to work differently, aren't they? And that's exactly what Paul is teaching about. When we see the value God has for us regardless of where we are in life, regardless of what we do in life, then we start to value ourselves. And when we value ourselves, we value others. And that becomes something that's like a domino effect. And people value all those around them. And we serve differently when we embrace that. And I think about in schools sometimes... And I think about, and maybe not, there's not as many kids that'll be in, in this service as in the second service, but I think about what if um, you embrace this with your education? Are you just trying to get it over with? You know, I know y'all can laugh at me when I tell stories about my kids because most of y'all have been there and done that. But when you're trying to get your kids to work on their grades and they're, they constantly say, I'm never going to use this. Okay, don't you hate when they say that? I'm never going to use this stuff. And I'm like, yes, you will. And I try to make up something where, you know, some scenario where they will use this, you know, um, especially the math and science when they come to me and they, and, and this is what the problem nowadays when my kids bring their homework to them, I can get the answer, but they say, we can't do it that way. Have y'all ever had that? You know, that's not the way you're supposed to do it. But that's the answer. It doesn't matter. She said, he said, we have to do it this way. So there's a whole other formula that they're using. I don't know what it is, but my way doesn't work anymore. So I feel like a, you know, a, a horrible father because I can't help them with their homework. But I think if kids would realize your teacher is not really who you're serving. You're not really doing that to get a grade or whatever at the school for the school. It's really for Christ. Christ is your teacher. You're supposed to be doing that study. You're supposed to be doing that test as if, and if we could get kids to understand that God has gifted them with certain things, gifts and, and talents, and someday God wants to take those specific talents, like he says in Ephesians, we um, are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, which he has um, a, a plan for us in advance to do. And they need to understand if he has planned in advance, he's got a list of things he wants me to do with my life. 
He's gifted me for that. He's not going to give me something to do that he hasn't gifted me for and that he's not going to help me through. And I think that's important for us to let kids see that. And then Paul says, anyone who does wrong will be paid his wrong, and there is no favoritism. And I'm thinking, is he just talking to the slaves now, or is he talking to the masters? I think he's talking to both. And he says, there is no favoritism. And I bet some of the slaves that are reading this are going, what are you talking about, Paul? There is favoritism all over the place. I work with another group of slaves, and our master certainly shows favoritism to him. So what do you mean there is no favoritism? And I bet some of them are hearing this letter for the first time, and they're thinking that. Would you say in our world there is no favoritism? I don't think anybody would raise their hand in here and say there's no favoritism. There is favoritism. And even when there's not, your kids accuse you of it. And say, well, you like them better. You love them more. Do you ever hear that from your kids or people? You know? So we hear that all the time. But he's saying, I'm not unaware. I'm in jail for crying out loud. Do you think that's not favoritism? Do you think some injustice didn't happen for me sitting here? But he's writing this from prison saying, it's not about that world. It's about the world of Christ that now you are in. You have died to that old way of life. And now... No matter if someone shows favoritism, that's still wrong. That doesn't mean then you show favoritism and make it right. That's not how it works. And so he's making sure they understand that. And the folks reading this, I think, probably grasp that, but it takes them a while like it does us. But Paul is saying, when Christ is Lord of your life, whether you're a slave or a master, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're a male or female, like he said, all are what? One in Christ. And we treat people as if they are one in Christ and they're just as valuable as we are. He says, yes, there is favoritism in this world shown all around you, but not in Christ's kingdom. So I can imagine, again, I'm trying to think, what did they do when they got together? I'm sure they took communion, but I said, what did they talk about? And I can imagine that they took those wonderful parables and stories that Jesus talked about favoritism. And, he t- and they would tell those stories over and over again. Think about that. We know parables, but we go, no, where's that parable? They didn't get to do that. They had to recall. Didn't Peter tell us? Didn't Paul tell us? Didn't John tell us? Didn't one of the disciples, Andrew, Bartholomew, didn't he tell us that story that Jesus told one time about, um, you know, the last will be first and the first will be last? Tell that one again. And that's what they did is they sat around and it started saying that's who Jesus was That's the way we want the world to be. How Jesus treated people, that's the way I'm going to treat people. I can't control right now what is going on in my life as a slave, but I can control how I behave as a slave. I may not can control everything that's going on as a master, and I may not can turn all these slaves loose right now, but God's calling me to something and to start thinking about that. And so it's interesting So just like the instructions to the husbands and to the parents having equal responsibility within these important relationships, Paul gives instructions to the masters as well. Provide for your slaves what is right and fair because you know that you have a master in heaven. So he's saying, you need to treat your slaves right because you have a master in heaven. And if you have a master in heaven, if you're a follower of Christ, then you know you need to do the right thing because he's watching you. You're not really working for yourself. And you think about a master, that's who he's working for. And he says, no, you're working for Christ. And you need to treat your employees. And again, that crosses over into today. So Christian masters, think about that. So you're telling me there were Christian masters that had slaves. Does that seem like that's something wrong with that? How is it possible that Paul said it was? Paul said it was possible, but their treatment of the slave would show in their actions 
if they were really, truly a Christ follower. And the treatment of slaves to their masters was equally important to Paul in this economy. You know, take care. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about it a little bit. And then in Titus, he's also writing to another group of people, and he says this in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I didn't tell you that, so don't be, it's not going to be on the screen. That's my bad on that. But he says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. We need to make the gospel message attractive. And as a slave, you can still do that. And there's a beautiful picture in that one chapter letter called Philemon. I don't know if any of y'all have ever read that. If you haven't, I want you to go back and read that. Philemon is about a master who has a slave named Onesimus, okay? And that slave has run away. And it seems to be that both the slave and the master are Christians. They're followers of Jesus in this first century. And Paul is trying to be the go-between and say, you're both followers of Jesus, but you've run away. And you need to go back to your master. And master, when he comes back, you need to treat him right when he comes back. We know what the rules are for slaves and masters in the Roman world, but that doesn't matter because you both are in Christ. And it's a beautiful letter of how Paul's trying to bring these two people together in a very different culture under what now they are Christ followers. How do you, you, you deal with that particular relationship? And so our work in the world always matters regardless of what season of life we're in. We always have the opportunity to show Christ in the work and the way we treat others. Well, I'd like to kind of close out today um, and, and share with you um, just some things that I've noticed. Sometimes, because I stand up here on the stage, um, it seems like, you know, that's, that's what's most important in the church sometimes, but it certainly is not, and I know y'all know that, but I, I thought about that this week, that there's so many things, but have you ever watched that um, show, Undercover Boss?, Okay. If you haven't ever watched it, you need to watch it. It's an amazing show where the CEO of a company dresses up, kind of disguises himself, and he goes and works at the very entry level of all the different things of his company. And most of the time, the guy can't handle it at all. I mean, or the woman, they can't. It's so hard. But he all of a sudden realizes how many wonderful people that this person has in his, his organization that he did, doesn't even realize. And he finds out who's really working hard and who's not. And it's just it's a very emotional thing. But as I think about that, I think about all the things that go on in the church that most of us never see during the week. And so I just want to tell you what I saw just this week. I saw a husband and wife team who are recently retired that spent most of the day one day up here cleaning out a closet and organizing things for the children's ministry. That's what I saw. I saw a member who recently lost her job and then got a job because of what happened to her. Did you know every Tuesday morning there's a group of people, most of them not from our church but from the community, that come here at 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning and they sit around and they try to network and help each other find jobs. And she's the one who started that. So you don't even know that that's going on. I think about the faithful folks who um, come here every Thursday night and open up the church and are here, and most of them have been working or maybe even retired. They don't have to be here, but there's a group of people who are struggling through recovering from major, major addictions, and they come here for, what, gosh, 40 years we've been doing this on a Thursday night, and they help those people get their lives back on track. And I think about those who come and wash dishes and help on Wednesday nights when they've already been at work all day, and they go back there and help in the kitchen. I think about some of the retired folks that come and help on Wednesday nights. It's like, you've been working your whole life, and you retired, and now you come and work at the church. 
That says something about you and what you believe about Christ and his church. And I thought about one who recently agreed to head up an after-school program at Arbor Springs Elementary. Why did she have to do that? Because she loves Christ and she loves church and she wants kids to know the good news of Christ. And I think about those. Somebody had to come early this morning and put all those bread on your plate so you could take communion and put that juice in the cups. And people do that. I think about um, a couple who faithfully brings a lady to church every Sunday because she probably couldn't be here if somebody didn't do that. I I could go on and on, y'all. But I thought about just in one week, these are the kind of things that I see all the time at the church. And it tells me that those things behind the scene are work. No matter what you do, it matters. It matters to God. And so we want to get the most out of what God has called us to do, and we need to think about that. And when we really understand God's kingdom, when we really understand that God has created us for a purpose to serve others, then it makes us be more aware of where we might serve. And when we do that, when we do what God has actually created us to do to serve others, how does it make us feel? It makes us feel like, man, something matters. Like that lady says, it matters what I do. I may be just cleaning the floor, but it matters. And I want to get up and go every day because it's helping that person get better. It matters. And that's the way we're supposed to look at things. And in those relationships, it's very important. So whether you're a boss, a manager, or an employee, God's word speaks to us clearly today, doesn't it? So we're going to close right now. And as we go into it, there may be somebody here that says, hey, I want to be part of a kingdom. I want to be part of that world that you're talking about, and that's the world that Jesus has asked us to be disciples of, a world where we say every person is valuable, they matter. That's why Christ came to die and to resurrect so that we might have life, the abundant life that he always intended us to have. 